Let's open our Bibles to Ezekiel, where Paul was reading for us, Ezekiel chapter 18. I've entitled the morning's message, It's Not My Fault. I don't know if I've ever had one quite like that before, but it is appropriate for our text as we find Ezekiel in Babylon. Jerusalem has not yet fallen. His message, along with Jeremiah, who is in Jerusalem, has been a very repetitive message. And that is because of your sins, I'm going to bring judgment, and the judgment is going to be discipline that's going to last for 70 years, so settle in. It was a tough message to hear because there were false prophets saying just the opposite. Don't worry about a thing. Um, We'll be going home shortly. And um, they called Jeremiah the weeping prophet for a reason. He had a very sober message. Nobody wanted to hear it. They threw him in prison, they threw him in the pit, and um, yet he was faithful to what God's word had to say, even though it was not a positive message. What's happening here in chapter 18 is they simply do not want to take responsibility for the sins they've committed and the judgment that God is now going to implement. So our text begins with verse 1, chapter 18. The word of the Lord came to me again saying, what do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel saying the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine, the soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine, and the soul who sins shall die. Israel has gotten to the place, instead of just coming up and say, and do what Daniel did in Daniel 1, Daniel intercedes and prays the first 23 verses of Daniel 9 is a prayer of repentance that they should have been praying, but instead of acknowledging their sin, they're making excuses. I don't know who said it, some famous guy said, anybody who uh, is good at making excuses is, isn't good for anything else. Anybody know where that came from? <laughs> I, well, I'll take credit for it. <laughs> well, instead of you know, getting to the place of admitting their blatant sin, and it was grievous, I mean, um, they were weeping for Tammuz. They were worshiping the sun god. Uh, They were setting up altars on high places where they were committing literal sexual immorality out in public, out in the open. Uh, They had their idols. And to top it all off, they were offering their own children to be sacrificed. And so instead of taking responsibility and say we're we're worthy of this discipline, of this judgment, because we have sinned. They came up with this proverb, it's not our fault. It's it's the responsibility, it's not my fault. What they're implying is in this proverb, it's dad's fault, it's mom's fault. And so the quote in the proverb of the day is, the fathers are the ones that ate the sour grapes, and it's affected us, and um, that is, a, is an excuse, failure to take responsibility, 
And uh, really the rest of chapter 18, the Lord is gonna make it very, very clear to them, no. He says, don't say this anymore. I'm tired of this proverb. I'm tired of you guys not confessing your sin. And so the rest of chapter 18 is the Lord just laying it out and explaining to them, no, each person is responsible for their own sin. And he begins in verse five talking about a just father. Let's pick it up there. He says, if a man is just and does what is lawful and is right, and if he has not eaten on the mountains nor lifted his eyes up to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, we're talking about rape here, nor approached a woman during her impurity, if he has not oppressed anyone, but has restored to the debtor his pledge, has robbed no one by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing, if he has not extracted usury nor taken any increase, but has withdrawn his hand from iniquity and executed true judgment between man and man, if he has walked in my statute and kept my judgments faithfully, he's just, and he will surely live says the Lord. Now, as you look at verse 10, we're now introduced to his son. We've just read the characteristics and attributes of the father. He was a just man. And now, the Lord is going to talk about this man's son in verse 10. He says, if he begets a son, now who's a robber, or a shedder of blood, or who does any of these things, and does none of those duties, but has, has eaten on the mountains. He has defiled his neighbor's wife. If he has oppressed the poor and needy, robbed by violence, nor restored the pledge, lifted up his eyes to the idols, or committed abominations, if he has exacted usury or taken increase, shall he then live? He shall not live. If he has done any of these abominations, he will surely die, and his blood will be upon him. So right from the get-go, the Lord is laying it out. There are those that, um, uh, of their own free will, choose to do that which is right. And yet you can have a son who has been brought up in the right ways and has chosen by his own free will not to do that which is right. McGee, J. Vernon McGee, I quote him all the time, as you guys know. He says, the problem um, is that the proverb that drew from this verse is it's incorrect. And it's actually, um, um, actually taken out of context. This is a false proverb. And then he makes this comment. He says, this is not a judgment for eternal life, but a judgment in this life according to a, as a man obeys or disobeys the Lord. Now, we are going to get into the New Testament, and we'll talk about um, the difference of, of uh, the sin that leads to death, but I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself there. Um, what this chapter basically lays out and flies in the face of is uh, psychology. And I'm thinking about Freud and, and Jung and and the fathers of uh, psychology. Uh, Basically, um, a psychologist will psychoanalyze you. 
to find out what your problem is. And many times they come away, well, you are the way you are. You're a spoiled brat or you turned out weird because obviously you were mistreated by your mother or your father or maybe you were neglected and you weren't loved. Um, But the fact of the matter is we stand alone and if it's one thing that Ezekiel 18 clearly points out is that uh, you have free will and you're not a product of your father or your mother. We've just read five through nine, just man, and then 10 through 13, rotten kid. And um, he can't make the excuse, it's not my fault. It is his fault. Why is it his fault? Because he chose to. And um, you know, these shrinks get paid 150 bucks an hour uh, so that you can appease your guilty conscience by passing the buck and say, Glad it's not my problem, it's not my fault. It's all the way I grew up. I was brought up in a rotten home and therefore that's the way I am. I'm a product of my environment. What I'd like to do this morning is address two different doctrines. Uh, Man's free will, which I believe the Bible teaches, versus one of the, let me just interject this at at this point on a personal note of what's going on in the Calvary Chapel movement. the doctrine of reform theology and Calvinism is one of the reasons that this split is taking place. Brian actually wants to associate and build bridges with ministries that are clearly reform in their theology and are very, very Calvinistic. And um, um, in case I forget to mention this later, let me just say it now, that uh, I remember Oh, 15 years ago, um, people were inviting John MacArthur um, to pastor's conferences, and Chuck wrote a letter. And he says, guys, I want you to stop doing this. I like John MacArthur, but he is a Calvinist and he holds to Reformed theology, and we do not. So would you please stop inviting him because we have very gifted Uh, godly men, hundreds of them, that um, you can invite rather than inviting somebody that does not hold to our distinctives and as a matter of fact teaches just the opposite of what we would uh, believe. Now I got that later in my notes, but I'm 65 now. And what happens when you're 65 is you say, I'm gonna say that later and you forget and it never gets mentioned. So if I get it out of the way now, I can repeat it later, and it'll have double impact. (laughs) I hope. All right, let's see if we can describe just what Calvinism is. Um, We're having Robert Cogden with us. This guy's so sharp. He's a Brit. He's from Europe. He lives in the States now. He's in high demand. But um, coming from Europe... Uh, he said, Dwight, uh, the new, it's the new, he calls it the new Calvinism because it's become very slick in how they're wrapping their package, but it's still Calvinism and Reformed theology. And uh, he will be with us uh, for our pastor's conference in April. Uh, he wants to be here personally in the, in the worst way, but he's in such high demand that they had, uh, his son built a, a studio in his house So we're going to Skype him in, but because this is such an issue, I don't know anybody 
in the world that addresses it better than Robert Cogden. And um, he's got several books called The New Calvinism. One of them is called I Thought It Was a Four-Point Calvinist and, and uh, or a Three-Point Calvinist. Listen, there's no such thing as a three-point Calvinist or a four-point Calvinist. I like to say if it looks like a duck and it sounds like a duck, guess what? It's a duck. <laughs> Excuse me. But, uh, you know, there's volumes this big that are written on Calvinism. Um, Dave Hunt has one this thick that you can read. But if you just read the title, it explains the whole book. And um, the name of his book is What Love Is This? And um, as we get into Calvinism, they, they call it TULIP. It's the five points of Calvinism, and it's a way that you can remember it. Before I tell you what they are, let me tell you maybe five or six of the main people that are well-known in the Christian world. Mark Driscoll would be one. Um, he's one of the guys that Brian was trying to build bridges with. He crashed and burned on his own. Um, Acts 29, of course, John MacArthur, very, very well known. I, I believe a brother in the Lord. We just don't believe in that doctrine. Uh, John Piper is very well known. Uh, Tim Keller and Alistair Beggs are both part of the Gospel Coalition. And if you don't know what that is, I would encourage you to do a little bit of extra homework. And... Um, um, especially Alistair Beggs, he's very, very popular, and very, very slick in that really you pick up that they were Calvinistic or Reform in their theology um, until you've actually got to know their doctrine and their teaching. So what is five-point Calvinism or TULIP? The T stands for total depravity. Now, I'm going to come back and explain each one of these. The U stands for unconditional election. The L stands for limited atonement. The I stands for irresistible grace. And P stands for the perseverance of the saints. T-U-L-I-P, TULIP. Quick definition. And again, I'm just, I have to just scratch the surface because... Um, there are volumes that are written on this particular subject. Let's just look at the first one, total depravity. That is, you must be born again so you can believe. So you have to be born again before you can believe. Thus, faith is a consequence, a result of regeneration. And they have the cart before the horse. But what the Bible teaches is you must believe so that you can be born again. You have to have the faith first. Thus, faith is the precondition or the requirement for regeneration. You have to believe and then you're saved. Where in Calvinism it's total depravity and you have one before the other. Unlimited, unconditional election. And this is really the scariest part of it all. And that is you are elected by God without regard to faith in Christ. In other words, you really don't have a decision in the matter, that you were predestined either to go to heaven or you were predestined to go to hell and you really have no choice in the matter. It's called unconditional election. And we'll 
discuss that in a little bit more detail later. What the Bible teaches is, yeah, you are elected by God in accordance with faith in Christ. In other words, whosoever. You're a whosoever. Did you know you're a whosoever? Whosoever will, let him come. For God so loved the world that what? That whosoever. So it's, it's a matter now of, yes, exercising my free will. All right, limited atonement. Christ only died for the, those that God had predestined to be elected. Christ only died for the elect. John 3.16, Christ died for all the sins, um, for all the lost. And again, whosoever comes, that person um, will, of course, by exercising his faith, uh, will be saved. Um, the next one, limited um, no, irresistible, let's get into irresistible grace. And that is their, their de- definition of it. Uh, God appears to offer salvation to all, the general and outward call, but only intends to save some, in parentheses, the elect, and ensures that the some he intends to save will be saved without regard to faith or willingness of the elect the elect cannot help but believe and be eventually saved, and the unelect cannot help but not believe and will be ultimately damned. Again, you have no choice in the matter. That flies in the face of Romans chapter 1, verse 16, which says God truly offers salvation to everyone on the condition uh, they receive and believe in Jesus Christ, Uh, The saved can thank God for the provision of salvation, the cross, the offering of salvation by the gospel being proclaimed. The nature of the offering is it's a free gift and the capacity to believe in Christ and thereby receive the free gift. uh, Those ultimately lost will only have themselves to blame. When you hear the gospel, I, th- I think of the day of Pentecost when, when Peter got up and preached. And the Holy Spirit came down upon him. And as he preached, it says they were cut. They were convicted. They were aware of their sin and their involvement for the crucifixion of their Savior. And it says, their question was, guilty as charged. Now what do we do? And Peter says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved and 3,000 people that day got saved. Well, guess what? There were more than 3,000 people that were there that day. What does that mean? Well, there were those there that for one reason or another chose not to believe and they exercised their free will and um, as a result, they are still not saved and they will ultimately be lost but they only have themselves to blame. Somebody asked me, we were talking about the unforgivable sin. Here's one of the good reasons for being in the second service. This wasn't in the part of the first service. And uh, what is the unforgivable sin? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And they, they really didn't, uh, it was asked to me while we were in Israel, actually. And they wanted a scripture verse for it. For, so we looked it up. And, um, and I explained to them what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. Jesus said, all manner of sin is gonna be forgiven. Even if you sin against the Lord Jesus and take his name in vain, 
He says, even that will be forgiven. But then he says, but the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, not in this life, nor in the life to come. So it begs the question, what sin is that? What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? John 6 says that the Holy Spirit was sent into the world so the world would be convicted of its sin. The primary purpose for us now is that it comforts us. We pray for, for uh, Ken and Pam that they need the comfort of the Holy Spirit right now. But that's not the original purpose of the Holy Spirit. The original purpose of the Holy Spirit is to bring conviction like happened on the day of Pentecost. They were cut, they were convicted. Now, if you're cut and convicted and you're hearing the gospel and you know you're guilty and you, here's, here's an old word for you, shine it on. Anybody know that? that means I'm really showing my age now, right? Chuck, you're with me on that one, right? He's the only one. <laughs> you gotta be over 60, plus it's a California thing. We would say, blow it off. And if you are under that conviction and you decide, no, I don't want I don't want nobody ruling over me. I want to be the Lord of my own life. I want to do my own thing. I don't want to be accountable to God. You've just committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If you've heard the truth and you know you're a sinner and you're convicted and you don't repent, you've now committed the only sin that cannot be forgiven. Why? Because there's no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. You see, the issue is sin. And Jesus is the only one who ever said that he came into this world to die for the sins of the world. Good place for an amen. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So as, as we get into this, free will clearly has to come in play for the Lord even to make a statement, whoever commits the blasphemy, that's hearing it, but then rejecting it. That person will never be forgiven, not in this life, nor in the life to come. I know this is the heaviest, heaviest subject, and I was talking to my friend Chris, who called me to tell me about Carol's passing, and, and we got talking about where he's at on Sunday, where I'm at, and I said, well, I'm doing a study on, on uh, election and, and uh, free will, and he says, oh, I got some great pictures for you, so what I'm about to show you, if you don't like it, it's not my fault, Okay? It's Chris Quintana's fault. So if you have a problem with the pictures, except for the first one's mine, but the other three, they're clearly Chris's. All right, because it's heavy, I thought, well, let's see if we can lighten it up a little bit. We found, I, uh, I think we should probably sell this T-shirt in our, in our bookstore. Calvinism, some lives matter. <laughs> I mean, doesn't that say it all? <laughs> some lives matter. Well, then Chris, when I told him that one, he said, well, I got some. You want, you want them? And I said, send them on out. So he, he sent me three of them. Here's, here's the first one. It's the Lord standing at the door. And he says, behold, I stand at the door and, oh, who am I kidding? You, can, you can't have a choice. I'm taking the chosen and leaving the rest. All right, here's the next one he sent me. He says, uh, don't bother getting up. No, if any of the elect are in there, I'm just going to kick the door and, and take whoever I want. Sorry about the rest of you guys. That's number two. And the third one we got here is we got Charlton Heston, Moses, 
This is Exodus 30. It says, this day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and cursings. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. Psych, you can't choose anything. I'm just messing with you guys. If you don't like the last three, would you please let Chris know? But tell him you really love the first one, okay? All right. This is a heavy subject, so lighten it up a little bit here. The question arises because the Bible does teach predestination. And believe me, you can rack your brain over this issue when you study it thoroughly. And um, I remember when Chuck was working with it, and he was reading an author that's um, a good author in most cases, and that would be Pink. Um, but he was Reformed and Calvinistic, and it was driving Chuck crazy. And he just couldn't reconcile it in his mind, and he tells the story of taking the book and throwing it all the way across the office in his frustration. And he says, Lord, I don't get it. It, it, it contradicts it. He says, and the Lord just said, it doesn't contradict it at all. Just read what the Bible says. And that pretty much put it at rest. But the Bible clearly teaches that um, um, predestination. And um, if it teaches predestination and God has predestined us, then we have a problem, so to speak. But I believe the problem is resolved in 1 Peter chapter 1, and that's where I'm going to have you turn next. And while you're turning, let me just again remind you of some of the attributes of our Heavenly Father. First of all, our Heavenly Father is what we call omnipresent. Well, what does that mean? Omnipresent means that God is everywhere at all times. Psalm 139, David says, where can I go from your spirit? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go to hell, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and go to the farthest ocean, even even there, your hand will guide me. He's omnipotent. Well, what does that mean? It means he's all powerful. (laughs) Some guy not thinking very well said, do you think God could ever make a rock so big that he couldn't lift it? That's dumb. <laughs> when, you're, um, when you're all powerful, there isn't anything that you can't do. Well, the other thing that God is, is omniscient. And omniscient means that he's all-knowing, that there isn't anything that God doesn't know. So he can predestinate me to eternal life and I can still have my free will intact. And you say, how so? Answer, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. I read, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Notice, elect, they're elected, but they're elected according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and the sprinkling of blood of Jesus Christ. If our God is omniscient, if there isn't anything he doesn't know, well then don't you know that he knows that I was gonna free of my own free will someday 
choose him as my Lord and Savior. If he didn't know that, then he wouldn't be God. So am I elected? Am I predestined? Absolutely. How? According to his foreknowledge, because he knew I was going to do it all along. And to me, you know, it really settles the, the debate when it comes down to this issue. I believe that free will and man's free will is in every book of the Bible, from the book of Genesis all the way to, to the book of Revelation. And I don't have time to um, hit all of them, but let's just hit a couple, couple of the highlights. First of all, even before the world was created, God had already created the angels. Well, how do you know that? Well, it says in the book of Job that all the angels rejoiced and they sang when God created the earth. And so before there was an earth, there was the angelic realm. The head of the angelic realm was Lucifer. He was the cherub that covered. Evidently, um, along with the four other cherubim mentioned that we just read about in Ezekiel, Lucifer had a place of prominence. He was created in perfect wisdom and beauty. Would you just let that settle in for a second? Perfect wisdom and one of the most beautiful creatures ever created. And yet he exercised his free will and he rebelled. And not only did he rebel, but he was persuasive enough to have one third of all the angelic beings make a choice to rebel with him. Choice has to be involved. You can't have a rebellion because now you're choosing. He chose to rebel. This is, this is exactly what Isaiah um, tells us about his rebellion and his choice. This is what he said. Question, how are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How is it that you're cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farther sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will be like the most high. And the first sin entered in, which was pride, motivated by Lucifer's free will. And as a result, um, God's perfect universe is tainted. And we read in Ezekiel, he says, you were perfect in all your ways, and then you have this big little word, until. What happened? Well, somewhere he made a choice. As he was observing the glory of God, he thought, I think I'd like that. And he chose of his own free will, says, I'm going to be like that. And he exercised his will, and in so doing, he brought, according to Revelation chapter 12, a third of the angels with him and rebelled. Well, let's turn to Genesis chapter three, and we'll see that um, both Adam and Eve exercising their free will. I mean, from the beginning, the first of God's creation, he created Adam, he created Eve. We read in verse, chapter three, verse one, now the serpent was more cunning than any of the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, has God said? And this is what, he's never changed his method of operation, his MO. It's always the same, challenging the word of God. God had spoken, and now he says, has God said? 
You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And Eve said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden. God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it. By the way, the Lord never said anything about not touching it. Do you know that? She sort of added that to it. Lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, well, you're not going to die. So now he's the father. That's why in John 8, he's called the father of lies. He lied. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, well, then your eyes are going to be open, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for fruit, and that was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate also. The question is, you can eat of these, you can't eat of those, and obviously a choice was made through the deception to partake, and the very first thing that the Bible teaches us is that Adam and Eve had a free will. And they exercised through deception by Lucifer the wrong way and as a result, sin entered the human race. We talked about this last week in Romans 5. Through one man's sin, Adam, it tainted the entire human population. And then it goes on to say, but through one man's righteous act, Jesus, he has restored man back by one work. All right, I'm just gonna quote to you Joshua. I picked this one because most of, a lot of you have this, um, uh, um, I got it in the concrete <laughs> on my back steps as I walk, walk in. I put Joshua 24, verse 15 down. It says this, if it, if it seems evil for you to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the the gods of the Ammonites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, my choice is we're gonna serve the Lord. Anybody but me got that hanging on your door or by your steps? Many of you do. And what are you saying? Well, you may not choose to believe, but as for me, my choice is we're serving the Lord. Amen? And then the most obvious one I've already quoted, John 3.16, For God did so love the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, whosoever is everybody, gang. Is that clear enough? I mean, it just doesn't get any more clear. Whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Lord goes on to say he takes no pleasure in the death of of the wicked. Yesterday we were in men's prayer. We were in Luke 13. And we were, I told the guys what to pray for. I says, I'm talking about election and, and Calvinism tomorrow and sin in general. And um, we were in Luke 13, and the question that the disciples had is, um, let's just flip over to Luke chapter 13. Let's pick it up in verse one. It says, they were present at that season, some who told them, uh, the Galileans who, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifice. So the question that, that was asked, Jesus answered and said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you no, but unless you repent, 
you will all likewise perish. And then he uses another illustration. He says, well, what about those 18 on whom the, the tower of Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think they were worse sinners than any other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? He says, I tell you no. Uh, but unless you repent, you will perish. Now he's talking about something bad happening to you and what this should clear up and give you peace about is um, time and chance happens to all. You know that's a proverb? That you can have a flat tire on your way home today and it's not your fault. <laughs> and it's, it happens, okay? And things like that just happen in life and it's not because you did something wrong. But there's people out there that have that mentality. They get in trouble and I said, well, this is obviously I'm being punished because I did something wrong. No, they weren't worse sinners than anybody else, but the main point that the Lord brings out is the necessity for repentance. Without repentance, you will perish. I mean, is that clear enough? You have to repent, and that was the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing about the conviction, and when you do, you won't perish. All right, let's go back to... Um, um, uh, well, let's just pick it up. Our text back in, in um, Ezekiel 18, what, again, the implication is that it's not my fault. I simply grew up on the poor side of town. It was a rough neighborhood. I, learned, I had to learn how to be tough myself, and if I didn't, then, then I'd pay the consequences. And the reason I'm such a jerk today and a hard nose is because I grew up on the poor side of town. And what um, chapter 18 is saying is that's simply not the case. That even though you may have grown up in the worst of conditions, that you still have a free will to do the right thing. And I believe that there's a slam dunk scripture that should set this issue to rest once and for all. And I need you to turn to the book of Revelation chapter 20. And as you're working your way there, let me ask the question. If we're held accountable for our sin, when exactly does that begin? I was at, um, I was at the Y this week. <clears throat> and um, I was down there for what I call an executive workout. You guys know what an executive workout is? That's when you go to the Y and you sit in the whirlpool. <laughs> That's an executive workout. And then you go sit in a chair. Because I'm still not 100%. This, this jet lag was nasty <laughs> coming back. But I read into one of my Y buddies. And he asked the question. He said, Dwight, I haven't seen you in a long time. How are you doing? And I said, you want to know the truth? And he says, yeah. And I said, I'm wiped out. I just got back from Israel. I'm still jet lagging. He says, Israel, I just got back from Israel. Well, he's a well-known Jewish attorney, and he took 14 of his family members, and three of them went to the Wailing Wall for their bar mitzvah. And I says, you gotta be kidding. I pulled out my phone, because I stood in line with Todd and Miranda and others that were with us on this trip. And while we're waiting in line to get up on the Temple Mount, we had at least five bar mitzvahs 
going past us. Now, if you, if you don't know what one is, let's see if I can sum it up quickly. They're under a canopy, held up by four poles, and uh, they have everything from shofars to trumpets, um, a lot of singing, and that 13-year-old boy is the center of the universe, and he knows it. And all the attention is being doted on him. And it's all about him because it's his time of coming. And so I, I pulled out the video and I showed it to my friend and um, he was impressed. He said, well, that's exactly where, where we were. And he had three of his grandkids. Uh, they flew to Israel to have their bar mitzvah there. Well, what is a bar mitzvah? Well, bar means son, bar Jonah or bar whatever. Bat is uh, the one which would mean for daughter. Mitzvah is basically a command. So what the word actually means is in Jewish law, at the age of 13, a Jewish male becomes accountable for his actions. Now for the girls, it's 12. Boy, can I get sidetracked on this one? I could, I could score a lot of points with the girls this morning. Gals, you're more mature than we are. What can I say? It's biblical, <laughs> at least in Judaism. So at the age of 12, um, they're at that age of accountability. I'm glad I'm not God because obviously it's different for different people, right? He decides where that line is. He says, okay, today you're accountable and uh, this day you're not. And he's the one that makes that decision. But it's somewhere around, uh, according to Jewish law and custom, a bar mitzvah is the coming of age. And when you have your bar mitzvah, you're now, you're qualified to study the scriptures and you're now responsible and accountable for your actions. And um, you can't um, make, make the excuse that I was too young, immature, or whatever. Putting us all the rest by saying, well, my father ate sour grapes, children's teeth are set on edge, I grew up in a crummy environment, um, didn't have good parent um, uh, authority in my life, and that's why I'm screwed up. All right, let's switch it around. Let's take the perfect environment. Let's take a thousand years where you have the perfect ruler, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will rule and reign in righteousness. It's perfect, you can go camping, no mosquitoes. You can buy flowers for your wife on Valentine's Day, no thorns. Is not the lion gonna lay down with the lamb and a child play by the cobra's um, den with absolutely no fear at all? So now you have the perfect environment. We've been told from the beginning, and we do it all the time, that this kingdom would come. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. The book of Isaiah is primarily about the coming of this kingdom. That's what we're waiting for. And in it, only the righteous, after the tribulation, and only the saved, will be allowed into this kingdom age. But after a thousand years, longevity of life is going to be restored. And just like our text in Ezekiel chapter 18, what did you have? He had a righteous father. He's going to live. But then he had a son 
who wasn't righteous. So it will be in the kingdom age. Um, The earth will be greatly populated again. And now you have 1,000 years and the first generation saved, but now they're having kids. And these kids can make up their own mind. Uh, The Bible tells us that a sitter, a young guy being 100 years old, will die. 100 years old, we think that's pretty old. No, in the the kingdom, he's just a a young punk. (laughs) And he's 100 years old. But my point is that that he has the capacity to sin. Dwight, what's your point with all this? Well, if we would believe the Freuds and the Youngs and the psychologists of today, it's not your fault. You see, the problem is your parents. Your problem is your environment, all right? Revelation 20, verse seven. Perfect environment, perfect ruler. Only does that which is right, always corrects that which is wrong. And even with this perfect environment, what happens? We find the perfect environment that existed in heaven before Lucifer fell. That was a perfect environment. We find in verse seven, now when a thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and he will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose numbers as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and they surrounded the camp of the saints, that beloved city, And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. It was over quick, the judgment was swift and necessary. Why? Because what they're about to enter into after the thousand years is eternity. And if you choose that you really don't want to be with your heavenly father through eternity, well, then you have a choice to make. But again, in order to have an alternative choice, that's the reason that you wonder why, after capturing Satan, why would you lock him up for a thousand years? Well, the answer is God's gonna use him one more time. For what? The same thing that he used him for Eve, to give an alternative choice. Choice is here. He goes out and says, you're living under this dictator, now you're gonna live under him forever? No. They exercise their free will, They were deceived, and before we go into eternity, the Lord makes short order of it. One of the guys after the the first service said, Dwight, you should have read just a little bit, uh, a few more verses, uh, because it would have made your point of free will even more clear. So, one of the bennies again of being in second service is getting input from the first. (laughs) So let's go down. And we have those who now are standing before the great white throne judgment. These are the lost, picking up from verse 12. John says, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their, what? To their works by the things that were written in the book. In other words, the choices that they chose in life were all being written down. And when it came time for their day in court, they had, the evidence was there. It was all recorded. Every choice they made, and especially the one of rejecting the gospel, all written down. 
and there, there's nobody that can dispute it. And it says, as a result of that, those who were not in the book of life, um, they were judged, each one according to his works, or I would add, according to his choices. My Bible says that my heart is deceitfully wicked above all things who can know it. And that means that I can be, there's an interesting uh, psalm or proverb. talks about a righteous man falling seven times. And I think about that. And this is what I think it means. I think on your best day, imagine your best day you ever lived, that you've still blown it at least seven times. <laughs> That's on your best day. And so either in thought, word, or deed, when you've done your best, you've still blown it at least seven times. And I'm grateful for 1 John 1, 9, where it says, if we confess our sins, that he's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from some unrighteousness, right? No, that's the good news, it's all unrighteousness. Why do we need that? Because on our best day, that's how many times you're gonna blow it. That's what I think that means. Now me personally, add a zero to that and we're probably closer to the accurate, accurate account. Or in John Marsh's, you have to add two zeros. <laughs> I heard an amen come from that corner. <laughs> what does this prove? Everything that the Bible says about us is accurate. When Paul says, in me that's in my flesh dwells no good thing, what do we think? Oh, there's gotta be something good there. Well, my Bible says every good and precious gift comes from where? From above. So how can I take credit for any of it? When Chuck was singing the worship songs and it was all done, that's what he does. You know, you give the credit and you give the glory to the only one who deserves the credit and, 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 and has the credit. Has he blessed our brother with a gift that's blessed millions of people all over the world? Absolutely. But it'll be the first one to, to give the glory where the glory goes. And that's why I think the Lord is still using him. And if you want to get taken off uh, um, the table and not used anymore, um, start taking credit for the things that the Lord has done. Uh, just like Nebuchadnezzar, last verse of chapter four. He was a proud man. Look all the things that I have done. And then he gives his pers- personal testimony and the last verse of his personal testimony says, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And he does. So in wrapping this all up this morning, um, if any good comes out of any of us, uh, that's why we say, well, praise the Lord. <laughs> You know, Chuck would often say, you know, you need to be gracious to people if they compliment you for something. And you could say thank you. But in the back of your head, you better be saying praise the Lord. And Lord, if it's good, I know where it's coming from. And you know what? That is so much freedom. There's so much freedom in that, to know who you are. And God loves you anyway. That you, We have, can be honest with who we are, and yet God loves us anyway. And um, if you were the only one who ever lived, he still would have come just for you. Let's close it up with this. Ezekiel chapter 18 is a clear chapter telling us that we are accountable for the choices we make in life. You're not a robot, but you're a free moral agent 
to choose the right from the wrong. And if you do wrong, it's your fault. Um, And no one else's. But why would anyone choose anything other than this wonderful free gift of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ? A gift is just that. It's a gift. And you receive it, the only thing that you can do is say thank you. Amen? And the only thing that we can do as a result of what he has done is he does, we talked about this last week with the 10 lepers. He does want us to be thankful. He does want us to sing to him. He healed the 10 lepers and only one Samaritan came back and the first thing that the Lord says to the Samaritan was, hey, I healed 10 10 of you guys and where's the other nine? Implying what? He was expecting them to be thankful. The only thing that I can offer to him is my gratitude. Lord, I'm so thankful that I really do wanna share with others this freedom that I have. That's not about me, because I know me, but it's about you giving me your righteousness and you taking my sin, calling that the great exchange. And that's the greatest exchange that's ever, ever taken place. Amen? We'll leave it at that. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. As we make our way through the book of Ezekiel, we find the nation, instead of fessing up, they started coming up with these lame excuses and blaming it upon their parents and making it not their problem. It is our problem, Lord. And if we harden our heart to that conviction of of the Holy Spirit, we've, we've committed the only sin that can't be forgiven. So Lord Jesus, in praying this morning, I humbly pray that if, there, if there's anybody here who's never resolved this issue, or has never really understood the gospel, where you clearly tell us unless we repent that we, won't, we will perish. And Lord, that the first act of the Holy Spirit is to bring that honest conviction. So Lord, help us be honest with, with ourselves and who we are and accept your provision, the free gift of salvation. And then Lord, in response, help us have this attitude of gratitude and, and offer to you the only thing you really want, a thankful heart and the sacrifice of praise. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.